I'd love to hear your definition of the word intentional. Intentional is basically taking action, taking action for something that, that, that really lights you up. Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Welcome back, everybody. This is episode 270 of the Intention Growth Podcast. And today we're going to be talking to Alejandro Camades. And Alejandro is a two times author. And we're going to be talking about the art of startup fundraising and selling your startup. And Alejandro was born and raised in Madrid, Spain. And at a young age, Alejandro was drafted to play soccer for Real Madrid, but his mother never told him so that he would study instead. And Alejandro then found himself 15 years later, found out himself 15 years later that this happened. And at the age of 22, he moved to the U.S. after and then after obtaining his law degree at the University of San Pablo CEU in 2009, he obtained his master's degree in international business and trade law at Forum Law School in New York City. After graduation, he joined the law firm King and Spalding. And as an attorney, he was involved in one of the largest investment arbitration cases in history, which was Chevron versus Ecuador at the stake of $113 billion. And why it's so relevant is Alejandro was an attorney. He decided, and he's going to tell this story about how he, how he showed up at a startup meetup and which led him into the startup world. And he built and exited Co-Founders Lab, which is one of the largest communities of founders online. OneVest slash Co-Founders Lab uh, was acquired by a media corporation based out of California. At this point, the company had over a half a million active registered members, and the deal was worth millions according to a post published in Forbes. And this whole community was, the the purpose was matching capital and fundraising to entrepreneurs with ideas. And he built this whole ecosystem that's just amazing. And then on in 2013, Kermadez actually testified at the U.S. House Committee on Small Business to voice his stance on the challenges the company was facing as the changing industry and the future of equity crowdfunding. He was involved in the JOBS Act trying to just change the way that equity and raising capital worked. And he has since wrote the two books, The Art of the Startup Fundraising, which has a foreword by Barbara Corcoran and then published by John Wiley Sons. And he also wrote recently and published Selling Your Startup, which in a blog post on Forbes, Alejandro said is, was 10 times harder than raising money. And so we're going to be talking today about uh, he's going to be taking us deep into the startup space where life is about raising money, scaling, and selling. And I'm personally excited about this because we don't spend a lot of time talking about the startup space on the show. So it's exciting to demystify some of the intricacies that goes on behind raising money, scaling, and exiting a startup. And there's a lot to be learned from an industry that's built on the built on the premise of growing valuable companies with an intent to exit. In the traditional main street or you know mid to lower market that we talk a lot about here on the show of privately held companies, the word exit is a totally a four letter curse word. Yet in the startup space, that is the entire point to raise money from investors, grow value, and deliver a rate of return for the investors and the entrepreneurs. The only reason a privately held business owner needs to think about creating value long term is and exiting is one that they have uh, once finally they get it by listening to a podcast like this or something happens that they finally understand that they have a financial asset that they want to grow value and focus on the right strategies and metrics in order to do that. And two, they have a triggering event that hits them in the face that they hadn't fo- and, then, and realized that they hadn't focused on the right things to create value over time. And now when are kind of behind the eight ball and looking to either create that value or get out and, and sacrifice things on the way out. Regardless of when and how you want to get out of your business, the sooner you can think about your company like a financial asset, the sooner you can focus on growing value with the end in mind. And I think looking at the startup space on how people raise money, why they raise money, what they do with that money, and then how they exit and the and a lot of the strategies that go behind that exit, there's a ton to be learned from regardless of whether you're in that space or not. 
So without further ado, here is my interview with Alejandro Cremades. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Alejandro, how are you doing, sir? Very well, very well. Good to be here with you and, and with everyone else listening. Yeah, I'm excited, man. We were just talking. Uh, you have uh, eclipsed me in the amount of episodes because you're doing three a week. But I've, uh, I have I came across the Dealmakers podcast through one of the circles that I was in. And just looking at the people that you had on the show, and then I kind of started pulling the thread. And I'm like, oh, you wrote a book you know, a handful of years ago. And then you just wrote another book about exiting after the fundraising one. And Man, you've got a great story, and I can't wait to dive further into it. So, Alejandro, why don't you just – how the heck did you get into fundraising, entrepreneurship, startups? Because you had – was it a law degree, an MBA? So, I mean, just give the listeners the backdrop so we can pull pull the uh, different threads here. Yeah, so it's quite a story. I mean, as as you probably hear on the accent, you know, I'm probably the listeners too, and, and I appreciate the <laughs> patience, you know, from from Spain. So sometimes, you know, the Spanglish kicks in. But uh, but I came here <laughs> – I, I love it. Yeah, I was like 20, 22 years old, and I came to do my master's degree at the Fordham. And then basically from there, I joined a law firm and it was funny because it was in 2009 where all the craziness was going on, people firing people left and right. So I was like, man, am I going to be able to stay in this country or not? You know, you have this thing, this delivery happening to your house where you can get anything delivered. This is so cool. I don't want to leave. And uh, I was very lucky and I was able to secure um, uh, a position at this law firm as an attorney called King and Spalding, uh, where basically, you know, it was all, you know, oil and gas, you know, investment arbitration type of stuff. And I was very fortunate there because there was a bunch of really high profile cases. It was at the time, for example, the Chevron versus Ecuador, that was like $113 billion uh, at stake. So it was pretty amazing to do that. But I had um, I had a friend of mine that uh, was working at a hedge fund, you know, really investing in more growth stage type of uh, uh, technology uh, startups. And he said, hey, why don't you come uh, to to this thing called the New York Tech Meetup uh, so that you can see what I typically like to do and how some of my my, my job, you know, really works. And, and I said, sure, I'll, I'll come. So I went to this uh, meetup event that they had going on in New York. Uh, it was downtown. And I was probably the only one in the entire crowd wearing a suit and a tie. And people were like, <laughs> I was going to say, attorney yeah, meets startup oh entrepreneurs. God. Yeah. So people were like, who the, who the hell is this guy? Who the hell is this guy with a suit and a tie? No? And they, who brought the suit? Yeah. And, and so, 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 I was I was hooked, you know, from that moment on. I mean, there was like people up on stage pitching their ideas, people brainstorming, and I was like, man, this is amazing. So so basically, I started building relationships uh, in the venture world, and 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 that really got me into what my first, you know, really company would be. And you know, basically, the the, the idea, and, and you know, I gave my notice at the firm. I remember. My parents back in Spain thought that I was completely nuts for giving my notice to like start like a startup. They were like, what the hell is a startup? You went what there, got your law degree, yeah, and then all of a sudden you're putting your resignation. Like, what? Yeah, they're like, what's wrong with you? You've lost your, your mind, you know? And uh, so so basically I literally went from having a, a an assistant that would bring me water with ice. This was ridiculous. Like my first day at the job, like I was like 23 and I have this, this wonderful assistant. Her name is Ronnie and she, and she came knocking on the door. Hi, I'm, I'm your assistant. I was like, what? I have an assistant. And she says, <laughs> and she says, do you want water? And I was like, yes, please. And then she comes back and she says, do you want ice? And I was like, no way. I was like, yes, please. <laughs> so, so basically I went from that kind of, you know, uh, amazing, you know, kind of like, you know, uh, convenience to all of a sudden giving my notice and distributing flyers, you know, at the meetup events to hire engineers for my startup. I mean, it was this was such a humbling, you know, experience. And 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 that's you know really how I got started with startups. I mean, my first one essentially was all about connecting startups with investors, and then that evolved more uh, into what became my next one, which became an ecosystem where we uh, helped um, entrepreneurs in the journey of building, financing, and scaling their companies. 
We raised money from like 14 VCs, grew that to over 500,000 entrepreneurs in 234 countries. And then the company got acquired by a media corporation out of California. And in that deal is actually where I met my now co-founder at, at Pantera, Mike Severson. He was the investment banker that we used on that deal. We connected incredibly well. And I said, hey, look, I think that on the transactional side, because I was I was helping, you know, with 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 that platform that we have built, mm-hmm. the founders on the operational side. So I was like, I think that on the transactional side, people are really lost, and I think that we could really help on gaining access to capital, or for example, M and A. Why don't we do something to really help them? And and he got excited, and we went at it, and and never looked back. And and that was, you know, about four years ago. Uh, and we've been incredibly active in the last twelve months. We've done anywhere from two hundred and fifty thousand dollar rounds. All the way up to 100 million rounds. We focus on seed and on Series A on the capital raising. And then on M&A, we've done deals and we've looked at deals all the way up to 200 million. Uh, and on, 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 on fundraising, I mean, and, and M&A too, I mean, we're working with companies all over the world, 60% in the US, 40% elsewhere. Right now, for example, we have a company in Papua Guinea, another one in Bangladesh, which is insane. And, 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 and also like super active uh, too on, on, on being able to educate uh, people, no? So, mm-hmm. so I did that with the first book, The Art of Startup Fundraising. Uh, I did that with with Barbara Corcoran, too, that did the, the foreword from Shark Tank. I saw that. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> that book has been translated in every single language. Uh, this month is actually coming in Arabic. Every language, ex- wow. even Persian, Vietnamese, Korean, Chinese, except for Spanish. Can you believe that? Oh, that, what, did someone come out there just to spite you somehow? What, what the heck know, is man, that? I think that, I think that? I think that the Spanish publishers, you know, are, are a little bit you know, difficult yeah. to deal with, I guess. But, uh, but yeah, so, so basically... Just do one, it yourself, right? Yeah. So, so one realization that I got with that book, especially, is that when people raise money, they don't realize that when you're raising money, there's money in with expectations of money out. I mean, those investors are going to want their, their money mm-hmm. you know, back. So, so one thing that I really got present to after writing that book was that the beginning always needs to start with the end. And I find that for entrepreneurs, for the entrepreneurs that are listening, you know, they need to really understand what crossing that finish line is going to look like. And in essence, reverse back the engineering, reverse back engineer the process to where they are today in order to to take immediate steps in order to take to get there. And I find that the way that you raise money today is going to impact, you know, the way that you can raise money tomorrow, but then also the way that you can exit your business. So that's why, you know, the idea of this latest book that came out three weeks ago, which also, you know, like made it to the bestseller list, which was amazing, you know, was 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 basically the goal for giving that roadmap to founders so that not only they knew, which is called selling your startup, so that not only they knew how to package and position their companies for an exit, but then also how do you, you know, start working towards getting there right now, whether you are at the idea mm-hmm. stage on a company or building and scaling. And and in addition to that, the other, you know, educational stuff like the podcast, which already uh, went over 2 million downloads uh, a few weeks ago. That was amazing. You, man. Uh, yeah, that, that was amazing. And then also, I think that now I've done like over a thousand articles, uh, 300 on Forbes or something like that. Uh, and then on the guest uh, on, on the free time, I go and guest lecture at, at Wharton. You know, I, I do that as a way to pay it forward and give back. I love to be, you know, uh, close to the to the younger generations and then also see what's going on. But that's pretty much in a nutshell. makers, right? Yeah. So so that's it. That's it. So that's pretty much love you know, it, the journey. Well, and we're going to unpack quite a few of these different angles. And what I, what's super interesting about your both your books is startup raising funds and then Obviously, now that you've gone through your exits and been a part of a bunch of them, like what is the exit like? And I read that Forbes article you you wrote and you said that on number 10, it was that exiting is 10 times harder than fundraising. And so let's take a couple of these in a, in a couple of different categories. One thing I want to start with why you went down the fundraising route. Cause I would like access to capital is something that I, I, you know, whether it's a privately held company that is just trying to grow and fund their growth or truly like the startup world that, that you've been living in. Accessing capital is always difficult, and you are very—you were very passionate to the point where you were—you were like involved in like the Jobs Act and how, how like what what the structure was. What was your passion behind that, Alejandro? Like, why why did you see that as a need, and what were the inefficiencies in the fund fundraising arena before you before you got involved and before you were uh, 
trying to trying to make a difference there. Yeah, I think that, you know, the the what I really got excited with was how in fundraising there is a nice blend between strategy and psychology. And then also the 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 main issue that I was seeing was the lack of guidance and access. But more importantly, education, really knowing what's the process. You know, it's it's interesting how fundraising works in that regards in which I find that most people think about fundraising as money. But you you should never think about fundraising as money. You need to think about fundraising as networks. It's all about turning around the money and really thinking more than anything about who is giving you the money and how you can leverage their network in order to get to where you want to be. Because companies... Every 18 to 24 months, they transform. You know, the company that, that maybe you are seeing today is going to be different, you know, than the company they're going to be seeing in 18 to 24 months. And with that, there comes different skill sets, different requirements, different expertise, different different talent that you need. So, so basically, you know, every 18 to 24 months, whether you're going from a seed and you're raising 250 to 5 million to an A where you're raising 5 to 15 million. So, for example, let's, let's put that into perspective on a seed round, which mm-hmm. is the first round. You're going to be raising money from angels super angels and and as well family offices and some micro VCs. Here, ultimately, people are investing in you. They're investing in the strategic roadmap. uh, And and, and that's pretty much it. Now, what you're looking for from the people that are giving you the money is access to distribution, access to their know-how on how you can achieve product market fit, and then also access to internal processes so that you can build things up. Then 18 to 24 mm-hmm. months, the company is going to be different. So you're going to go to a Series A. At a Series A round, you're going to be raising anywhere between 5 to 15 million, where you're going to be doing the expectation is at least 1 million plus in revenue. And here you're going to be raising money from venture capital firms mainly. Now, venture capital firms, what they're going to be expecting from you is that you have product market fit. And basically, you need to show validation on what you're doing. Now, on your end, it's all about the networks again. And you need to look at who can they introduce you from a talent perspective. Because in this case, venture capital firms, they're going to be helping with access to perhaps securing senior leadership members. Another thing could be distribution. Another thing could be subsequent money. Another thing could be M&A. And it's interesting because then 18 to 24 months later, you're going to again mature to a different, you know, financing cycle. That's going to be the Series B. At the Series B level, you're raising 15 million plus, you know, typically. And here is very interesting how you are transitioning from being an early stage company to now being a growth stage company. And also the mm-hmm. people that you're going that you're going to go after is different because at this point, you're mainly looking at expansion. You're looking at ramping up. So you need to look at people that are giving you access to their network in a way in which they can plug get in and replicate whatever you're doing in a different geographic location. And then every 18 to 24 months after the Series B, you just keep doing more of the same in order to get you to that liquidity event, which comes in the form of an IPO, acquisition in stock or in cash, or a secondary sell. But but that's really what, what got me into this, is, 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 is that, that psychology, that strategy, mm-hmm. that process, I mean, I just found fascinating. And, 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 and again, you know, guidance and understanding, I, fi- I found that that was what it, what it was like lacking for founders. So I wanted to put an end to that. And, and, well, and, and I love, I love how you're, you're shining a big bright light on it and you are helping people understand the implications of the raising and what they're like, what, 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 what strings are attached and what's the expectation. And then explain to the listeners, I think it was pretty cool what you're doing with the Jobs Act and understanding how the access to capital was changing and how that landscape has changed over the years. Well, you know, that, that, that was very interesting because I went to the U.S. House of Representatives to testify. And I have to tell you that this was one of the most nerve wracking moments that I've experienced in my life. You know, here I am, a foreigner uh, walking in, 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 in Washington, D.C. And, and arriving there, you know, and, and, and basically all of a sudden I see myself in a room, you know, where we have the Republicans and the Democrats all asking questions nonstop. And I had the SEC right behind me. So, so, so literally, <laughs> you know, that's it, high pressure. Oh my God. I mean, there was literally one question. I'm not kidding you. That was, do you think the SEC is go- is doing a good job? You know? And, and I was like, my God, I can't <laughs> believe you're asking me this question. Right. So <laughs> like, uh, how open ended and like, yeah, like, okay. Yeah. How am I supposed to say but, I know this but, one? But, but that was obviously nerve wracking, you know, especially uh, being involved in that movement because 
it, the, the problem you know, there was that not only we had the uncertainty of building a startup, which building and scaling a company is uncertain you know, as it is. We also had the uncertainty of, of really uh, paving you know, the, 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 the wave or, 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 or the way or the path for what it would be that possibility of companies to accept money from investors online. So there was new regulation you know, that was being applied. It was like a wild, wild west. You know, and, and I think that my attorney background you know, came in handy because in many instances I would get with attorneys on the line and after you know, a thousand or two thousand bucks, I'm like, okay, I still haven't learned anything new. You know? So, uh, so <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, nobody really knew what was going on at that point. And it was it was it was incredible. I mean, obviously, right now, you know, you're seeing, you know, that there's much more education. I think that that has brought a lot of of light to it. But um, but yeah, I think that it's, it's been a, it's been a journey, you know, like for for every for you put a suit operator. on for that. Oh, yeah, you put I a did. suit back on for oh, that. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I did put a suit on. I did put my shiny glasses that I was wearing back then. So uh, so good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so um, when you talk about like that selling a startup is, was 10 times harder. What are some of the reasons you think that now, when you look back at your journey and all the people that you've been around and watching them go through the, the full cycle? You know, it's interesting uh, here because essentially, Ryan, when, when you are raising money, for example, you need to have everything figured out. Right. So those investors that you're coming across, they want you to make sure that you understand what's coming, what that journey is going to be. And you're very well put. Now, the problem on acquisitions is that it's 10 times different because it's not your idea. It's the idea of whoever is acquiring you. So while on fundraising, you need to have everything figured out on on acquisitions, you need to have everything on figured out because you need to allow whoever is looking to acquire your business to dream and to get an understanding and an idea as to how things could look like or may look like if they were to acquire your company. So it's much more difficult. Mm -hmm. It's uh, so I want to, I want to like layer on this uh, concept that we teach in our education, Alejandro, to see like how it fits with your world. Cause like, so when people talk about valuations, you know, it's just, so, there's, it confuses the hell out of everybody that's an entrepreneur. I see. Cause you got, I mean, how are you valuing a startup? You know, there's like some metrics between seed, A, B, C rounds. And then in there's the, 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 you know, the traditional business space where there's like cash flow, you name an industry, there's industry multiples based on the risk of the industry and size of the companies. So what I did is I said, you know, this is all just way too confusing for everybody. I want to have, cause like, you know, if you think about like the CEO peer groups or communities that we're in, you're getting conversations. Oh, you sold for 10 times revenue or you sold for 20 times EBITDA or this, you know, all these different metrics. So what we said is, you know what, there's two different main components behind this. Uh, the valuations is financial, which is intrinsic valuation based on like the risk of the cash flow. I truly like the discounted cash flow, very mechanical, like almost like you would uh, value a commercial real estate piece of property or bond or whatever it might be. And then there's what we call the transaction value, where there's the buyer and the seller, and then there's the purpose of the deal, where the every buyer could have a different reason. So you could have the synergies or whatever it might be from the buyer or someone that's still literally trying to give the company to their kids, but it's yeah. starting at that like financial valuation. But when I think about the world that you live in of startups and trying to grow these things, raise all this money, and then, like you said, trying to get to that liquidation event, it's so based on the psychology and strategy compared to like looking at the discounted cash flow valuation because you're you're truly scaling up to. I, I interviewed Chris Ye uh, from Blitz Scaling on my podcast recently, and he talks about just trying to like you know take the whole market. So like. How does psychology and like when you talk about like marrying up what you've built with those buyers and different types of buyers, allowing that like puzzle piece to fit compared to like the the money and like the value, like the, you know, like a financial valuation, because you're, you're raising so much money that it's not, it's not really, people aren't really looking towards the financial cash flows would be most of my, most of my thoughts from what I've seen. Yeah, well, I think that when it comes to acquisitions, for example, I mean, there's two types, right? So you got the strategic acquisition on one end, and then on the other end, you have the financial acquisition. So on the strategic acquisition, I mean, typically, especially for companies that are at under $5 million in revenues, that's basically going to be their, their route, the route to follow. So here they're going to go after larger corporations that perhaps, you know, can plug them into their umbrella, 
And, and here the, the valuation, for example, is going to be a wild, wild west, right? Because it could go from as little as 2 million mm -hmm. all the way up to 30 million. Now, what is really interesting on, on strategic acquisitions is that what you want to do is get, get whoever is sponsoring your deal uh, in, inside of their company to really submit that to the board, get the board, get everyone completely pregnant, you know, and really wanting to do this. And essentially, you know, like then, you know, it becomes more like an ego type of thing where, you know, if you have a, if you're able to mm -hmm. get a bunch of LOIs, which ultimately summarizes the terms of the transaction, an LOI is like a term sheet, you know, that you would find on fundraising. But in, in an acquisition, the LOI, once you get a bunch and you're, and you're able to, to, to really get them against each other since they already, their ass is already on the line, you know, they really want to get the deal done and they want to get it really badly so that they don't look bad towards mm -hmm. their board. So then price doesn't become become an issue you see so that whole valuation type of approach that's an, mm -hmm. doesn't really is not as important because because it's all about how how much is is your company worth to them when they were to plug it into their distribution channels and how that can impact the strategic roadmap that they have already built now it's a little bit different you know when you have achieved 5 million and you're 5 million plus in revenue where not only you go after the strategic, you know, larger players, but then you're also going after private equity firms. You know, typically private mm -hmm. equity firms, you know, are going to get, you know, more deeper into valuation and numbers and and all of that stuff. And, you know, I think that when, when it gets, you know, if you really want to have a clear grasp on this, one thing that you could do is take a look at, for example, your direct and indirect competitors and see who has been raising and perhaps at what valuations using tools like Crunchbase or PitchBook. And then what you do is, you know, if you've already like, uh, let's say, come up with your valuation with like a DCF, uh, you know, type of method or whatever that is, basically what you would do here is, in addition to that, you could perhaps, you know, have a range, you know, let's say if uh, you got from company A to company C and company A, you know, from valuation, whatever, and company C to valuation, whatever, you put yourself in the middle in that range. So then when that acquirer, you know, is looking to to try to negotiate you and negotiate you down, then you say, look, I mean, I understand that this is, you know, this may be, you know, a little bit on the higher end from your interpretation, but this is ultimately not only what the market is paying, but also we are in the middle. So we believe that this is quite mm -hmm. fair and we're not looking for, you know, more like a, a, a negotiation where someone loses and someone wins. We're looking more as a really nice strategic fit and, and, and also partnership where everyone wins. So so I think that, you know, you can use that no, no, that, 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 that methodology not only on, on acquisitions, but then also on fundraisings. Because the other thing too, when it comes to valuations, you're going to have people that are going to be asking, hey, what's your valuation? You know, whether you are looking for a sale or, or to get your company acquired or whether you're looking for a fundraise. And it is critical for everyone that is listening and, and watching as well that they know that whoever talks first is going to lose. And what I mean with that is if you talk first and you disclose what your valuation is, they're going to negotiate you down. If you let them talk first and maybe you, you turn it around and you say, well, you know, right now we're really, you know, in a, in a listening, you know, type of mode or I don't know, you, you, you need to figure out a way to dodge that bullet of having to answer, you know, your value. But if you are able to push it so that they talk first, then you're going to be able to negotiate them up. And that's where you always want to have it as an operator and also as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. So when I, when I think about you know, the, the art of the deal, like when you're actually going to that liquidation event and you talked about like with the new book and with you going through your exits and working with people that now doing that is when I think about startups, just like any founder that, you know, hadn't raised money, but sacrificed, every, you know, who knows what over the years and decades of growing the business, there's this identity infusion that a lot of people have with their business and the service and products that the business provides and so like there's this conflation of all that stuff. That's one issue. And then you have investors trying to say, I want my money back at the highest price because that's why we gave you money. And then you're trying to keep the integrity or your identity and your vision intact while trying to marry it up with these different strategic buyers that you even mentioned. You should give them the freedom to dream about what they want to do with your business. How do you balance the this is my baby, my identity, but I also have to give money back to my investors and I have to sell it for the highest price with people that might do something wildly different 
yeah. with it than I want. <laughs> so look, I, I there's a lot that, there I know, but that, that, that's a great question though because I find that one of the biggest mistakes that entrepreneurs make, and I made this myself, is that you think that you are the company. You think that you're the company, and uh, and 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 that's a mistake because the truth of the matter is is that every company is gonna die. Every company, you know, eventually with time, you know, every company is gonna merge. It's gonna go bankrupt. It's gonna whatever. But that company is is, is not gonna be in business forever, right? And and I think that as an entrepreneur, it's important to know that, and it's important to detach your identity from the company. Otherwise, you're gonna suffer a lot because. Building and scaling a company, and especially when you're looking at getting deals done, is a roller coaster of emotions. I mean, really, when you are selling your business, you know, it's it's interesting because it's like experiencing a death in the family, literally. It's like what you, everything that you knew and everything that you were doing for so long, all of a sudden changes, you know, once you ink the deal and once you sign that asset purchase agreement. And, and you see a lot of people that, that, that go through depression, you know, even, you know, if they've gotten a bunch of millions in the bank, you know, it's a, it's, it's, Mm -hmm. you you don't have that sense of impact or, or, or that, that adrenaline that you had, you know, while you were with your business. And now you have someone that you need to report to that is like so new uh, and, 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 and it's, and it's, it's tough, it's difficult. And, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely a roller coaster. And I find that. You know, another thing, too, is that when when we're talking about the identity and you being the company, I think that that can also get in the way uh, when you're looking at getting a good deal done, because in order to get the best possible outcome for the business, you need to always be completely unattached to the outcome of the transaction. And what that means is that, you know, if someone is coming and they want to buy your business if you are acting out of desperation or you're desperate and they can see that because you're going to be sending those signalings, you're going to get a pretty crappy deal. But if you're completely unattached, meaning that they come, they give you an offer and they say, no, you know, if you don't give me, you know, this, this amount, that is what I'm thinking. You know, I don't want to do anything with you. You know, it's a, it's exactly, you know, what, what, what you're going to be encountering people that are going to want to buy your business even more. It's like being in a desert. You know, and, and, and imagine, you know, the, the company that wants to acquire you is someone that is thirsty. Finally, they found a can of soda, you know, that is completely unopened. And <laughs> that's, that's your analogy. company. The more that it takes for them to open that can of soda, the more that they want it. So that's kind of like the, the, the way when, whenever they are in the desert and they have tons and tons of sodas, you know, it's like they don't appreciate it. Right. So you can't, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. really make that a scenario. You got to make them want it and want it really badly. So what did you, what did you learn after selling one vest and co-founders lab that this sunk in for you? Because and here's the reason for my question, Alejandro, is that, you know, we worked with a bunch of advisors on our exit and I see, you know, plenty of our clients or the people that have been on the podcast talking about it and advisors that have never had a business like that. They, 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 they intellectually understand this concept, but they don't feel it. It's not a truth to them. And so you being through this and now advising people, you can speak to the truth of what you live through. So how did that, how did that manifest itself in your exit? Like, how did, how did you realize that this was a thing or where were you and what were some of the circumstances that led to that insight? I mean, for me, you know, like uh, one, one, one thing that really led me, you know, mainly to, to, to get into this was that, you know, especially to write the, late, the last book, Selling Your Startup, was that I couldn't find anything, you know, around this. You know, most of the people that I was going, you know, or that I could see that I could give advice was a bunch of people with suit and ties from Wall Street. That's not the, the kind mm-hmm. of, of, of advice that I needed because I was still not at the IPO stage, you know, and it was a di- completely different process. So I find that, you know, when you go through through an acquisition, and especially, you know, in the small to mid cap, you know, a type of type of type of segment is strategy, you know, is critical. And and for me, you know, like when when I did those transactions, you know, it, it became more and more clear to me. So I think that, you know, in my case, you know, also, you know, going through 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 that journey, you know, I was able to really see what 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 was lacking for me. Right. And also what I was going through personally. You know, and, and for me, mm-hmm. I remember, you know, the day that I that I that I signed that asset purchase agreement, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I was happy that that was happening. But I was also unhappy because of now everything was changing around me, you know, after after that. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, first you get the excitement kicking in and then you're like, wow, you know, then the days go by and you start to see things 
completely different. You know, that's not you what you were used to see or 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 so forth. And and it's very interesting. So so I found that you know having that that experience, I think it's really helpful with the with the companies that we work with, because I I've been there, I've done that, and and I know what people are going from a from an emotional perspective. And I think that that's a really big mm-hmm. one when you go through transactions, and it's not easy. You know, in when you when you're doing deals too. You know, in many instances, it feels like the deal can fall apart at any point. You know, I, I had that experience too. Because <laughs> it know, probably I, does, right? A hundred percent. You know, with the with the four transactions that I that I did, you know, literally like all of them, especially the one that we did on the sell side, it felt like it was going to blow up at any moment. And and you need to have you need to keep your nerves. You need to 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 trust the process and 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 always believe that things are always going to work out. And and I find that. You know, for me, I was very, very fortunate. I had I had Mike, who is now my partner, you know, and we were able to push that nicely together. But I think that, you know, founders, whenever they're or operators, whenever they're going through an exit, it's important that they have someone, you know, along the way with them, just like as I had Mike, so that they can also play the bad cop, the good cop, so that they can remove themselves too when when they're talking about terms. I think that that was a really big one too. For example, you know, when 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 companies are going through a transaction, they need to remove themselves from the deal terms talk. That discussion, you need to be out of that. You need to let your advisor take that conversation on because that way you're also going to be increasing the potential terms and the numbers that you're going to end up getting. I find that you as the operator, as the entrepreneur, you need to always be on the good side. You need to be the one that picks up the phone and calls the CEO of the other company to untangle things whenever the lawyers are tangling them up. Because here's the thing. Lawyers, when after you've selected, let's say, like the LOI that you're going with and you go into the exclusivity period of 60 or 90 days and they're drafting the legal documents, it is not in their best interest to get the deal done. Why? Because the minute the deal gets they done, stop billing. they stop billing. <laughs> That's correct. I know, right? So, so, yeah. So I think that I think that having someone, you know, to hey, read, one more phone call, Alejandro. Let's do one more phone call. We got another paragraph that, we got to review. Literally, <laughs> and every phone call is like nine hundred bucks. So it's like it just that it, it keeps going. It keeps going. So I think that you know, again, for that too, you know, having someone that is able to to guide that and telling you, hey, now is the time to pick up the phone and stuff like that. It's also very important because being your baby, being your company, there's going to be times that are going to be full of stress, very stressful situations. And it's interesting because in many instances, as human beings, when we have that level of stress and that, you know, that much at stake, our brain doesn't function as well. Right. So there's going to be a lot of things that you're going to be missing out. And it's just because we're all human. Right. So Mm -hmm. and you're supposed to be running your company still. A hundred percent. I mean, you're like actually, yeah, you got to do the deal and run the company, which is insanely, insanely difficult as well. That's very difficult, especially when you go into the diligence process where you need to uh, submit like 300 documents and you're going into Q&A back and forth. I mean, that's why I find that when you're going through an exit, you need to have a team that is able to take the reins and really to avoid as much as possible the impact that is going to be caused by you being distracted from the execution. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. It's, it, it's, it's possible that the deal could not happen too. And if that's the case, you need to continue pushing the business. Then what? Yeah. So in one, uh, one question I'm super curious on how, how you would view this, Alejandro, is that um, so like going through our exit process, very similar experiences, a different setup of a business, right? It was, it was solely owned by our family, right? Versus having a bunch of investors. So we have ultimately got to make the decisions on everything. And after I went through it, started the podcast, started education, I'm just a huge proponent of having as much control and having as many choices as humanly possible. So that way you can essentially get whatever you want, which is the whole point of taking the risk. But within like a, like a normal privately held business or like multiple partnerships, it's a lot of it's based on cash flow if they're focusing and growing value correctly. And like when I think about like one of our common themes, is let's say someone's got a manufacturing firm or professional services firm or e-commerce and they're growing that by themselves. And then like, let's say they wanted to sell to a third party to that strategic buyer like you're talking about. But let's say they're like all of a sudden the buyer didn't like align with their vision or what they wanted to do with the terms and conditions or like employment agreements or whatever the heck it might be. They can go, no, thank you, because they've built a cash flow machine that they can turn around and do an ESOP, partnership buyout, private equity recap. 
when you're when you're raising money, you have so many other cooks in the kitchen that want their money back regardless of what you might want. How do you balance like the vision that you have for the business and those ultimate choices? So like if you're not relying on like the cash flow valuation as a way because your investors are forcing you just by the nature of having investors to have that liquidation event. How do you how do you yeah. balance and keep the control and the choices that that I'm promoting for everybody too? I think that you need to you need to make sure that there's clear alignment on expectations with whoever you're onboarding, right? Because again, you know, the way that you raise money today is going to impact the way that you can raise money tomorrow or even the exit, how that exit is going to look like. I mean, I have I have I have, for example, this case, you know, this founder that um, that got this, I mean, obviously we're not going to disclose the name of the VC, but got this VC that invested. They had the, you know, control, you know, on the board, a really big say. And um, eventually there was a there was a, a offer to buy the company for a hundred million, and you know the founder you know thought it was a great deal. Everyone thought it was a great deal, except for the VC, and the VC you know literally declined. You know made them decline that offer. Uh, and keep putting like stupid pressure because he just didn't align with the you know the returns and how, where they were at in the life cycle of their fund. So basically, they mm-hmm. declined that offer, and then unfortunately, you know, market circumstances turned around on them, and they ended up selling the business for for a few million. You know, a few years later, so it was a massive, massive uh, catastrophe oh and uh, super awful uh, for the founder, uh, and I felt awful for him. And, uh, and, and, and you see that. So I think that, you know, my, my uh, piece of advice always to entrepreneurs is that when you're looking at getting a deal done or bringing an investor in that, you know, obviously they're going to come with, with, you know, every round that you do, you know, those investors are going to want some level of representation, right, at a board level on this strategy. And they're going to want to be there with you and, and, and guiding that strategy together. So you want to make sure not only that there's a clear sense of alignment, but also that you get to know who you're going to be encountering, especially during the tough times. So one of the one of the pieces of advice that I always recommend to founders is that when you're looking seriously at bringing an investor and they're looking seriously at investing in your business, let's say, for example, a venture capital firm, you need to ask that partner or that investor to introduce you to the founder of a portfolio company that they invested in that has failed. So essentially what you would do is you would then speak to that founder and you would get to know then, you know, that founder will tell you how did that investor behave during the tough times? Did they jump in the mud, roll up the sleeves and did whatever they could to turn things around? Or did they turn that founder or did they treated that founder as a write-off so that they could shift the attention to other companies that were performing in the portfolio and literally left that company to die? Because when they do mm-hmm. that and they, let's say there's another round that comes about and they're not executing their pro rata right and they don't reinvest, then there is a negative signal that is sent to the market. And then other investors are going to mm-hmm. be, there's something wrong with this business. So in many cases, you mm-hmm. see companies like that dying left and right. But, but, but I find that you get to see the real human being during difficult moments. And I remember when I was, for example, doing fundraising for my company, you know, I would do like fun stuff. You know, I would take like a prospect, uh, you know, of an investor for lunch or dinner. And, you know, I would tip the waiter, you know, if, if, if they asked for fish, I would tip the waiter to make sure they would get the biggest steak on the menu. <laughs> and, 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 That's and awesome. And vice versa. So then, so then you get to see how they react when that dish is landing in front of their face. <laughs> And you can see if they're talking poorly to the waiter or if they're being, you know, uh, you know, empathetic or they don't care and they just continue. You want to know who you're dealing with, you know? So, 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 awesome. so that was, you know, one of the few tricks, but obviously there's many different ways of, of testing them out. But I definitely think that speaking with founders that have failed is going to give you a good flavor as to who you're going to be onboarding, especially during the difficult times. So that is, that I'm absolutely going to take that little trick there. That is amazing. You know, when I think about shifting kind of to the overall marketplace in the last handful of years, I mean, so like I look at when I was interviewing Chris Ye, we were talking about like, you know, the blitz scaling and like these companies that have changed our world. And now even since they wrote that book, it's changed to this, like people are just enamored with raising money, let alone having a product or service that changes a market or an industry for the better. And like, so there, in I, I see a couple of things that on the macro level that are kind of 
maybe pushing this direction. I'm curious on how it's manifesting in your world of like people can't find yields anywhere. So there's more money sloshing around in VC funds or private equity than there ever have been. And then you got some just like the, because of that and the people's need to make returns somehow and actually get these moonshots, the founders having more say in kind of like who they're raising from. So how is this dynamic on the macro level changed kind of the, the VC and, and fundraising and exit space that you're looking at? Yeah. I mean, it's something, I, I think that that's super interesting. What you mentioned, I think that Funds have more money than ever right now. You know, something like $83 billion to deploy, which is insane. And that has been growing. I think that last year was one of the best, you know, years in history, you know, for, for, for the VC space. And this year is probably on track. Now, one thing that I've seen, you know, a lot is, you know, especially with, with what has happened with the pandemic too, is that now the world is smaller. Now you can, you know, have all these meetings in, you know, online. You know, I remember when I started raising money, like, I don't know, it was like over, like maybe like 12 or 13 years ago, something like that. The partners at VC firms, I remember I doing the up and down on Sand Hill Road, you know, there in 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 in, in the Bay Area. And, they, and basically what I would always get is that they would not invest in a company that was more than a bike right away from their office. You know, and, and I would get this, you know, from meeting with company with 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 VCs there. But it's interesting how, you know, and that was obviously at the seed stage and series A stage, like mainly early stage. But now one thing that I'm seeing, for example, in terms of like how things have changed is that there is so much competition for deal flow. So much, as you were saying, now VCs, you know, mm -hmm. it's not as easy as it used to be before to get into deals. So now what you're seeing is that it's much more of a global approach. And now, you know, the bike, you know, it's probably full of dust. And now, you know, like it's, 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 it's something else where you see all these people that used to tell me that opening offices in Asia, in, in, in everywhere around the world. It's, it's really unbelievable. Mm -hmm. Even Latin America, I mean, Latin America right now, all these fintech investors that were super active here in the U.S., now they're all going to Latin America. It's booming. I mean, you see cases like Nubank, you know, like getting to 30 billion bucks in valuation, like almost no time. I mean, that was like 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 something that it was unheard of. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. Isn't but that's crazy? happening now because of this competitiveness towards deal flow. But, but yeah, I think that also on the on the M&A, you know, what, what I think is going to happen too is that there's going to be eventually, you know, very soon, I think there's going to be a correction on the market. You know, we've been on this bull run for such a long time that eventually I think that we're going to face the music because the market always goes in cycles. And I think that what's going to happen is that the market is going to correct. Eventually, you know, companies that are probably closer to an IPO, they're going to they're going to be suffering a lot, especially those that are building marketplaces and things like that that are like always one round of financing away from going out of business. They're going to suffer. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see a lot of consolidation. And there's going to be a lot of M&A activity, I think. And because mm -hmm. otherwise companies are going to die. It's going to be, hey, do I get someone to buy me or we go out of business, you know, kind of deal because right. money is going to dry up at that stage. Now, mm -hmm. at the early stage, typically when you see one of those corrections, it's completely different because even if you take what happened in 2008 and 2009, you would see that probably for the first quarter, there was a, 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 a correction on, on the amount of money that was available or that, or that was being deployed. But then after the second quarter, it was like the total rounds of financings, you know, at a seed or series A continued to increase. So I find that probably for the early stages, it might be like a, like a little, you know, a, a, a hurdle in there to get money. But but then it's going to be, you know, it's going to continue in the same in the same in the same direction. But for growth stage companies it's going to be very difficult. And I think that there is going to be a real problem there and, and, and real consolidation. So those are some of the trends and some of the things that I'm seeing right now. And some of the things that I'm that I'm thinking that are going to happen, you know, probably in the next 12, 12 to 18 months. Yeah, I, I, I can I can echo from like I. I because of the nature of my clients and the people that are on the show, it's a lot of the, it's a lot of growth companies, right? People growing to sell to private equity. And I've got a lot of PE firms that I'm coming on the show and like, they have like they're, the numbers are between 1.5 and $2 trillion in private equity coffers. Alejandro. I mean, it is so crazy. The, the shit I'm seeing, like there are firms that are like selling to private equity right now where KKR Blackstone or some of these other firms are already sitting there waiting for a mid-market private equity firm to buy them, to sell them 
with these privately held companies that are, I mean, like it's literally multiple arbitrage with huge companies. And it's, uh, I find it interesting because it's the, I'm watching this from the sheer, when you talk about the sheer like competition of deal flow on, you know, VC and private equity firms are kind of like now competing over similar deals. And it's all because the, their investors need returns and like where people are getting 5% in the junk bond in like marketplace. It's just ridiculous. So I, I just find it interesting. And like you said, I don't know how it's going to manifest itself, but I'm watching, I, I think the moral of the story, and I don't know if you're, if you're seeing the same thing is that founders are that can of soda in the desert. And the 100%. more everybody realizes that, <laughs> the more, the more control and power they're going to have over the whole situation. Oh, hundred percent. And 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 you know when I, when I was alluding to the eighty-three billion, that's obviously more for early stage VCs. But you know one of the things that 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 is very important here is that private equity firms they go after numbers. Venture capital firms mm-hmm. they go after people. And I find that. You know, especially when when you're a founder and you are you know at a growth stage. If I had to compare which one to pick, I would probably go with a VC uh, because you know they're going to be more understanding. You know, if you're you know uh, hitting some hurdles along the way, versus a, a PE firm that is going to be always monitoring every milestone, every metric, every they're going to be breathing down your neck. Now you could, I think that private equity firms, for example, are great not just for. Um, uh, full exit, but then also for a partial exit because you're able to remove some of the risk and to take some chips off the table. So in many instances, you see those companies that are selling 60%, you know, the founders also get some cash, you know, some liquidity. And basically the PE is the one that is taking all the risk because now they have all these millions in the bank, you know, the founder and they're like, okay, mm-hmm. you know, if we do a second exit, fantastic. And if not, you know, look, I already got this money and it's less risk for me, no? Mm-hmm. Are you seeing any VCs or other uh, similar types of investors like going after like ideas of like a traditional business. Cause I've, I've watched a lot of traditional business. I'll give you some example here is that like HVAC company or like, you know, some other like professional services firm that has like a software idea that's baked into the business. Cause they're like, Hey, this is constantly a problem. And like, so have you noticed any kind of like blending of someone that's in a traditional business that then takes in like, you know, actually will raise VC, uh, funds or seed funds from like it maybe create a different entity and have like a startup next to their current business. I'm just, I, I see those ideas. I have those ideas as I see companies all the time. I just don't know if people are doing it. Well, I think, I, th- I mean, I think that it's happening. And one of the things that, uh, that is very interesting here, for example, what you see with, with e-commerce is how many of those say e-commerce sites, you know, and companies, they start to create like actual retail physical, you know, locations and basically using them more as a way for fostering loyalty with their customers. I mean, you've seen that with Warby Parker and you're seeing that, you know, mm-hmm. with other companies that took the route of being hyper growth, but then also like having the traditional side, you know, to to really foster that loyalty. So so I think that, you know, like um, that that VC investors also have been able to see that model blending well. So maybe, you know, like perhaps taking a look at a traditional uh, model and then figuring out how to put that in on steroids and on the hyper growth be also merging it or blending it with the digital side that mm-hmm. maybe they could bring in. I think that, you know, that could be, that is interesting. And, and definitely if you're able to build that loyalty right off, right off the bat, you know, why not, you know, putting a bunch of money and exploring different ways to really, you know, make it a, a rocket ship. So I know we're getting close to the end here. Uh, I just got to ask out of 300 and what did you say? 80 some interviews now or whatever the heck it was. What are some of your, like, what's your favorite part about doing the podcast and maybe get a couple of memorable stories? So for me, the, the, the best part is, is to be able to learn. You know, I, I think that every company is different. Every entrepreneur is different. We all have our different stories. We all have, you know, our backgrounds, the way that we were brought, the way that we were raised. You know, it's like different angles, different countries, no different, different cultures, and, and I always learn something new, you know, either either from an entrepreneur in India, which are remarkable because those are the, in my mind, the ones that are able to really blend very well the technical aspect with the business aspect, a la, a la Steve Jobs, you know, kind of style. With And that's because they're very, very pressured to get like high degrees. And there's a lot of them getting the computer science degree, a lot of them. Uh, and, um, and, I, and I find that, you know, like to me, you know, I always have something new to learn. Now, in terms of some stories that, that, I, that I have found remarkable, you know, I, I, I always keep coming to the fact that in the U.S., people can do anything. 
And that is something that I love. You know, I've, I've had stories from people that grew up in a pistachio farm to, you know, now building a $5 billion business to another founder that, uh, that crossed the border from Mexico with his parents. Uh, and, uh, and essentially, you know, the mother was a cleaning lady. The father was a bus driver. Uh, the mother was very, um, was very much on top of him so that he would study. He eventually got into Harvard and, you know, it was amazing how he would tell the story on that first time that he went to a hotel room and doing a video call and showing all the family, like the mini bar (laughs) and all of that stuff that it was really unbelievable. (laughs) And, you know, he's raised now like 150 million. Another story too. This guy was pretty unbelievable. So, so basically he, he, he became an addict. So he became an addict to heroin, I believe. And basically he lived on the streets for two years and, you know, gang activity, all of that type of stuff. And Mm -hmm. he went from that to, to taking, you know, his company public. So, I mean, that's another one. Then there's one that it's remarkable is this guy, uh, Jay, and he built a company. Now I, I, I can't, I can't remember the company well right now, but he took it recently public and he was, this was his ninth company. And this guy grew up in the Himalayas. So th- th- think about oh that. Think about that. And and he sold already two companies for 250 million plus in cash. <laughs> so awesome. so it's interesting because when you speak with people like that and also one thing that I've that I've that I've gotten from 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 interviewing all these people I think in the last 12 months I've interviewed over 50 entrepreneurs that have built a 1 billion plus company in less than 5 years. So you get to really Whoa. see patterns. You know when when VCs talk about pattern recognition, when you interview so many people and you see so many people that have been so successful, you get to see some of the things that they do that are similar. And one of the things that 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 I always come across, you know, in terms of like what are some of those similarities is that those entrepreneurs really care about listening. Whether it's listening to your investor, whether it's listening to your customer or to your employees, but they know that it's all in the listening and in the conversation. It's not about you and your assumptions. It's all about the data that you can collect and how you use that to your advantage in order to execute. I think that listening is a really big one. And then also, you know, the, the customer, putting customers first. You know, when, when you see those founders, you know, they share their story. I, I remember this story from the brother's that uh, built, I believe is a, uh, the Mosi, Mosi Brothers Digital Ocean, I believe it's called the company. And they were talking about that, that, that meeting that they went, I think it was to like a tier one fund. I mean, don't quote me on this. It was like an Andreessen Horowitz <laughs> or one of those top, top funds. Yeah, and, yeah. They, and basically you would see, uh, they were sharing how people were like on their phone, not paying much attention. And all of a sudden they start talking about, they, they go deep into their customer. They go into breaking it down, into sharing what they've learned about their customer and why they're so excited about their customers. And you could see the, the, the investors like putting down their phone, their eyes lighting up and like fully listening. And then from there, like giving them a term huh. sheet. Yeah. Like, it's just like, like having that understanding of your customer and putting them first is something that I've definitely seen on, on those entrepreneurs and always people that, that cared about surrounding themselves by other folks that, they, that, 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 that can really contribute. And, and one thing that is very interesting too is that Many of those founders that that have been super successful, they know and they understand that history repeats. And one thing that I've come across a lot is that many of those founders, they were avid readers of biographies of other people. And uh, I mean, that's the case of, of these guys. Now there are companies like $2 billion. You know, they were like this, uh, these two young guys that started to read the biographies of Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and stuff like that. And they started to really, you know, take some good pointers and to implement the same. And uh, history repeats. So there's no need to reinvent the wheel. I love it. I love it, man. I, that's, uh, and I'm sure like out of uh, almost 400 episodes, you could probably keep going. Um, this has been an absolute blast and honor to have you on the show. Two last qu- questions before we wrap up. One, uh, I'd love to hear your definition of the word intentional, name of the show, something that's near and dear to our heart. So what would be your definition of the word intentional? Intentional is basically taking action, taking action for something that, that, that really lights you up. That's what, what then the last question, I love it. 
Last question is where to find you, your resources, your books, how to engage with you, how to follow you. Where, where's the best place to find you? Yeah. So the books, you can go on Amazon. You can just type in selling your startup or startup fundraising. They will come up. Uh, and then also you can find me on Alejandro at PanteraAdvisors.com. That is my email. Uh, and then also you can you can find all my articles and everything that I've published on AlejandroCremades.com. Alejandro, thank you so much for coming on the show. I had a blast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Alejandro. I think that there's a lot to be learned from the startup space, regardless of whether you're planning on fundraising or doing a startup. The fact that in that entire industry, it's baked into the culture of Getting a rate of return after growing enterprise value, so crucial because if you own a business right now, you have become that investor, whether you consciously made that choice or not. It's not just a job. You have a financial asset and growing enterprise value and having some sort of plan on when and how you can tap that financial asset is crucial. I highly recommend going and checking out the intentional growth training. Go to arcona.io, check out the curriculum. We talk about valuations, how they work, deal structures, how to grow value. We just updated a bunch of videos on the financial clarity and how to be truly projecting out the value of your business, looking at the three financial statements. If you text the word intentional to 66866, You'll get five videos on the five intentional growth principles, along with the intentional growth vision board, which to give you a, a one page piece of paper to say, this is what I need to focus on to understand how to grow value with the end in mind. Thanks everybody for tuning in and I will see you next week.